Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, June 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, how to survive the heat wave. Then, why community college enrollment is declining in the state. And the story behind North Mississippi's black fife and drum tradition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's extremely hot in Mississippi, which can be dangerous on this first day of summer. Jim Pollard is with the ambulance company American Medical Response. He speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. Even the healthiest among us can fall victim to heat exhaustion and then heat stroke. A great many of us have suffered heat exhaustion and even you get through the crisis and don't deteriorate into heat stroke. It takes several hours to recuperate from heat exhaustion. Just to give you an example, a healthy young man um, who succumbed to heat stroke about three years ago in the metro area, um, the son of uh, one of my coworkers, sadly, uh, and um, he was a construction worker on the job site, uh, started uh, feeling effects from the heat, told his boss, boss said, you know, make sure you get some water, uh, go cool off under the shade tree there. And uh, tragically, uh, sometime later, um, a co-worker found him, uh, one of his co-workers found him uh, unresponsive, no pulse, no breathing. Um, this shows you, you know, even if you are outdoors a great deal and have gone through the gradual increase in uh, heat and humidity, um, that everybody has a point where the heat can uh, become deadly. When should somebody call an ambulance or 911 to be able to get some treatment out for if they have somebody that they are concerned about? Well, you you need to start first aid on the heat exhaustion patient right away. And if the patient is um, not 
uh, responsive. Uh, that is to say, if the, if the patient has altered level of consciousness, um, and good many um, the folks in emergency medical care will say uh, that's an indicator that you ought to call 911. A lot of folks uh, do instead of calling 911 for heat exhaustion patients, they'll treat at home, and uh, that can help, but the safe thing to do, particularly with altered consciousness, is to go ahead and call 911, get the paramedics there. Uh, they have IV fluids to help uh, restore uh, some of the lost fluids uh, uh, for the patient and otherwise help cool the patient down. Uh, if you suspect that a patient has uh, deteriorated into heat stroke, you must not delay, must not delay. With heat stroke, you need to call 911 immediately and institute first aid appropriate to that condition. Moving on, I wanted to talk about cars. What are some of the dangers associated with leaving a child or an animal in a car? How can people be safe whenever they have to go into a store and they can't take in their pet or child? You don't go in the store. Period. Never, never leave a child or a pet uh, in any vehicle, even with the air conditioning running or with the windows cracked. It's just not. It's just not safe. And the risk is that you go in and you are only going to stay for a minute or two, and a minute or two becomes ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Uh, it's really uh, so sad that uh, some families lose uh, children. Um, each year in the country in situations like that. Uh, often uh, children uh, die from uh, heat stroke in vehicles when there's a change in the routine of uh, who's taking care of the child. For example, let's say mom typically drops the child off at daycare. Uh, and for some reason, one morning, dad has to take the child to daycare, and the tendency, well, there's there's greater risk, obviously, uh, to forget that the child's in the back seat. Um, children, just simply because of the way their bodies are shaped, tend to absorb heat about five times faster than adults do, and uh, that that can be a recipe for death. Remember, a car can heat up to the effect of uh, an oven uh, within 20 minutes uh, in this uh, heat and humidity, and um, it's so sad uh, that we lose children this way uh, each year uh, in Mississippi. Coming up, why community college enrollment is declining in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Southern Regional Education Board has released its 2021 Factbook on Higher Education. The report identifies Mississippi as one of several states with a decline in college enrollment. Stephen Pruitt and Stevie Lawrence are both with the Regional Education Board. They spoke with Kobe Vance. Here's Pruitt. 
our two-year colleges have been particularly impacted. Uh, and we are, we've seen a two-year college enrollment decline really gradually over the period from 2014 to 2019 by 11%, and in SREB world, a 7% decrease. And, you know, that's particularly troubling, um, partly because as we have economic issues in our country, we tend to see where our two-year college's enrollment tends to go up, but actually we're seeing the opposite. When COVID hit, we actually saw a drastic drop in two-year colleges, about 15% in 2020 and about 7.8% in 2021. Specific to Mississippi, you know, it's it's pretty typical. Uh, we're, we're seeing those same kinds of things. Um, but I would say that uh, something to really be aware of is that in Mississippi, you saw a 4% increase between 2014 and 2019 in the number of working age adults with associate's degree or higher. So there's some kudos to be there. You're not quite at the SREB average yet, but you're getting there. But if we don't pay attention to the fact that we've got to get more people into post-secondary opportunities, it can only hurt us over time. I don't know, some other states in your report have been uh, losing people that are getting associate's degrees, whereas Mississippi, we did see some growth, um, 5% among women and or 13% among men. How typical is that amongst other states? Um, and then what seems to be working in some states to get people to participate in post-secondary or what's not working in other states? Well, that's a great question. I mean, one of the biggest things that we've heard from students that we interact with uh, has been around how do you recruit and most importantly, how do you retain students in the post-secondary institutions toward attainment? We started a couple of years ago at SREB a student success advisory. And at each of those meetings, we hear from individuals um, who are in schools at all the levels. And what advice would they give policymakers and the leads of these institutions to keep them there? So the things that we're seeing that have been very positive is a change in high school in terms of counseling, where there's a greater emphasis on ensuring that FAFSA is completed, that um, you know that there's a lot of, of time spent in giving students uh, career advisement time where they're they're really exposing them to a to a wide array of what's out there and what's available. We've also seen where colleges and institutions have have shifted the way they approach advisement to be uh, especially in community and technical colleges where they're helping students move toward certifications as well as associate's degrees, which allows them to go ahead and enter the workforce a little sooner. It keeps student debt down and allows them to really have the room to be able to move toward an attainment of an associate's degree. So I think a lot of the things that are helping are helping, especially first-generation um, college students, know how to navigate what to them is a very complex system, and then how they can apply what they're doing to their to their working lives. Stevie, was there anything you'd like to add about the things that are going really well in helping move students toward associate degrees? Sure. Um, I think that, uh, as Stephen has already alluded to, um, 
K-12 systems and the folks in that arena, they're actually really starting um, access um, initiatives and programs earlier now. And really, I think one of the things that's really um, adding to the success of uh, the completion of associate degrees or things such as dual enrollment initiatives and dual enrollment programs within um, schools. So, so students are earning college credits much earlier. And so I think that lends itself to greater completion um, of associate degrees. And even um, we hope to see that uh, those same returns or outcomes happen for four-year degrees as well. So, but definitely um, dual, impro- dual enrollment and college preparatory type programs are certainly um, one of the things that's uh, working to increase the number of students that are completing associate's degrees. What's been your takeaways from uh, the public perception of the need to go to college, Um, especially as you mentioned earlier, there are positions that are requiring more and more college education? Yeah, I think I think that we, we live in a very entrepreneurial society now and folks are finding vast and very different ways to make a living. But I do think that there still is a respect for a post-secondary credential. Um, But I think people are, again, I think it's tied to um, the cost and can they really afford it. Um, So I think that we, we have to follow um, the the spirit of society really are follow the trends, meaning um, we have to make higher education more entre- entrepreneurial, meaning that we may need to look at different ways to provide um, these degree options to students rather than the traditional two-year associates or technical degree or the four-year um, college degree. Online learning is certainly becoming, is no longer the wave of the future it is now, And so we really have to make sure that those type of um, options are available to students, micro-credentialing, providing students with alternative um, credentials and um, shorter um, academic programs and certificates are certainly the now. It's no longer the future. So colleges and universities certainly have to um, work to get up to speed to make sure that they are meeting students where they are. Coming up, the story behind North Mississippi's Black Fife and Trum tradition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. University of Memphis scholar John Shaw's latest book is called Follow the Drums. It tracks a deep legacy of African-American fife and drum music in Mississippi and Tennessee. Shaw is set to speak at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson tomorrow. His talk will explore musical traditions all but lost to history. Today, the genre is uh, limited really to two families, as best we can tell, within Tate and Panola counties in the hill country of Mississippi. But this uh, kind of belies the fact that this was once a ubiquitous 
kind of music in black communities in the South, particularly during the time of Reconstruction. And uh, its roots go back before the Civil War to black drummers in Southern militias, which I didn't believe it until I saw it with my own eyes in newspaper articles of the era. And um, there were these drummers were part of the state militias in even Alabama and Mississippi and elsewhere. And there are, in fact, accounts of black drummers in Confederate army units and home guards, which is just bizarre. So there were black drummers from the earliest times of the United States. And the, this tradition continued during the Civil War on both sides and then was a big deal during Reconstruction. It was used for political rallies and for uh, benevolent societies, burial societies that took the place of life insurance in black communities. And uh, over the years, it continued. But, of course, the nadir, the period of time in which uh, African Americans were stripped of their political rights, led to this music becoming clandestine. It became a rural thing that took place in ball fields and parks where not very many white people were likely to go. Well, you mentioned life insurance. How does life insurance play into this? Well, in the life insurance wasn't common in the South until after the Civil War. And the earliest companies were founded by veterans of the Confederate armies. And as as they would not write life insurance policies for black people. Uh, This will change, of course, but it was not the case in the 1860s and 70s. So black people had to come up with their own system of help for their communities. And what they did was to form social and benevolent societies, which in New Orleans are called social aid and pleasure clubs and still exist. And in some rural parts of the South, these benevolent societies still exist in conjunction with black churches and cemeteries. And a man could join these organizations and pay his dues and know that if he died, the society would take care of his widow or his children or both and would bury him with music. Now, in the cities, this was typically with a brass band and still is in New Orleans, if you're familiar with that culture. But in the rural communities, it was more likely to be a bass drum, a snare drum and a fife. And early on, the fives were made out of cane, uh, bamboo cane taken from a creek bottom and burnt out. Holes were burned in it for the fingers and another hole to blow through. And this was literally the earliest form of this. Was there Uh, a passion to this, something that was beloved by folks? Yes, I think very much so. And on the other hand, was not well loved. Uh, in, you know, the white community to some extent. There's a, uh editorial from the Tate County record that said, what did the fife and drum mean 10 years ago? This was from 1874 that they wrote this. And they said, what did the fife and drum mean, you know, years ago? It meant Negro domination over the white man. And it means the same today. So the Tate County paper, Democratic at the time, was very upset because this music was associated with republicanism, which in those days was largely black in Mississippi. So there was a tendency to identify the music with 
black demands for equality, for equal rights. And this was not always appreciated, you know. By the 1930s and 40s, people were able to buy life insurance. There were black life insurance companies. And this had a deleterious effect on the societies that had been founded back during Reconstruction. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, what I'm, uh, I mean that, like, in the societies, you paid your dues, but there was a lot of work. They might ask you to be treasurer. If you were a young man, they might ask you to help dig the graves. There was a lot of responsibility that involved being a member of the society, but with life insurance, you just paid your premium and you were covered. So when life insurance became available, people quit joining the society. And they just started buying life insurance policies. And this didn't immediately mess up the societies, but it ultimately did because people started buying policies from universal life insurance in Memphis or life or, uh, you know, the different black owned life insurance companies. And as this became the, ten, the trend and by the World War II in the late 40s, early 50s, the societies began to suffer. People were not joining them and paying dues and, you know. So eventually, in a lot of the states, this fife and drum tradition just vanishes. It just dies out. It was gone by the early 70s in Tennessee, mostly. But in Mississippi, Mississippi, fortunately, the band leaders found a way to pivot and begin to become community bands for their rural areas. So is it living anywhere today in the state? Yes. uh, Charday Thomas is the granddaughter of Otha Turner, who was the most famous pipes and drum band leader. He had been on, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on PBS. He had been uh, on Sesame Street, I believe, as well, and certainly was in the movie Gangs of New York, the Martin Scorsese film. So basically... Otha had a presence that was well-known. He was by far the most famous, although the Young family, which were discovered by Alan Lomax near Como, were also very well-known. And Sid Hemphill, the father of Jesse May Hemphill, had such a band that was recorded in Quitman County. I think they were really from Panola, but again... So this was out there, and Chardet continues the legacy of her father's or grandfather's band called the Rising Star Fife and Drum Band. And, and you wrote a uh, book about this. Yeah. Say what now? You wrote a book about this. I did write, yeah. Not so much about the tradition as it is in Mississippi, because that's been a little more discussed. But the tradition as it is in my part of Tennessee, which had not been well discussed at all. And uh, I found that there was such a band in my own hometown of Bartlett, where I still live, and that I went to high school with it, the leader's grandson, which just blew me away. So I had to do this research because I never knew that the tradition existed to the extent that it did in Tennessee. John Shaw is an ethnomusicologist, and he is with the University of Memphis. He will be in Jackson on Wednesday at noon for History is Lunch, sponsored by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Thank you so much for sharing um, all of this wonderful information about history with us. We appreciate it. 
Oh, I'm, you're welcome. I enjoy it myself. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's in legal terms. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Be careful in the hot sun.